Hello, thank you for joining us. We are proud to welcome you to our special series, War and Peace, brought to you by Brill, where we talk about the constantly changing security situation in the world and the need for stronger institutions for maintaining global peace and justice. I'm your host, Lee Jung Greco. Today we're speaking with Professor Wolfgang Ichinger. He's a former ambassador and professor at the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. His piece is International Security in the 21st Century, the Ukraine Crisis, and the European Security Order. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. It's a pleasure to to be with you today. Uh, Thank you very much. So you address 10 points as part of your dual strategy to tackle the crisis in Ukraine. Can you just highlight some of those? Well, you know, I mean, the Ukraine crisis is, of course, an evolving subject. And uh, whatever points uh, we made uh, a year ago or or two years ago uh, are probably no longer the valid points for uh, for this moment, and more importantly, as we try to think about uh, the future, let me let me just um, uh, highlight a, a, a few key points. The most important one is that, from a German point of view, uh, the most fundamental uh, assumptions about European security and how it should be defined and how it can be maintained uh, have uh, totally become unraveled. In other words, what we're looking at today, after three months of uh, a Russian war of aggression against Ukraine, is the total destruction of practically all the fundamental assumptions about what constitutes European security. We are, in a way, at point zero uh, of trying to re-examine and reconstruct and rebuild something which would uh, give to the countries of Europe um, a sense of a security order, a sense of um, uh, rules, of uh, legal commitments, of uh, security in the broadest sense, which at this moment is absent. So I think that this is the most important point to be made uh, at this moment. We are uh, 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 we are forced to start thinking about European security from scratch. Second, um, and I want to be very brief. Uh, let me recall that my generation of diplomats uh, started in the early 1970s, in other words, 50 years ago, trying to build something which would deserve to be called a European security architecture. We speak of the Helsinki Final Act of 1975. We speak of the uh, Charter of Paris of 1990. We speak of subsequent um, documents and texts, including the Uh, NATO-Russia Founding Act of 1997, uh, uh, etc. 
all of these documents, including all the arms control arrangements, which had been developed to reduce uh, the military risks and, and surprises uh, on the European continent, uh, are no longer existent or are no longer regarded as being uh, valid. Uh, the only currently available uh, arms control arrangement is one which is not a European arrangement, but it is a US-Russian arrangement, namely the so-called New START arrangement regarding uh, intercontinental strategic ballistic weapons. In other words, including in the area of arms control and confidence-building measures, we are going to be forced to start from scratch. So again, my final point, just to repeat, um, to repeat this, we are at point zero trying to figure out how best uh, in a situation where one European country, a nuclear power, has started a war of aggression against a neighbor with the determination to um, extinguish, to eliminate the um, independent national existence of that neighbor. That has not only put in question, but has actually uh, extinguished all existing, all prior hopes of a durable, of a sustainable European security order. We are at point zero. So, yes, you know, as you've talked about, you're starting from scratch. Um, I'm really curious from the German point of view, so much has changed over the last several months. Um, how much of that German strategy before February had hinged on your country's dependence on Russian oil? And how do you think that strategy or that outlook has changed? Well, let me go back. Uh, let me go back a step. Let me take a step back and and talk about Germany's role uh, in the post-World War II situation. Initially, uh, when after World War II, two German states were brought into existence, uh, the mission of West Germany was uh, the mission of a country that was not satisfied with the status quo. Uh, the mission of Germany, of West Germany, was to overcome the status quo, was to overcome the division of Europe, was to overcome the uh, partition of Germany into two separate uh, entities. By 1990, when German reunification finally happened, by the way, with substantial help and support, as it turned out, from the then existing Soviet Union, by 1990 then, uh, Germany had uh, reached fulfillment of its mission to overcome the status quo. And Germany developed a love affair, uh, a durable love affair with the status quo. Germans felt that now the moment had come to collect the peace dividend. Uh, Germans found that there was now no longer a need to maintain a large army because, as German leaders began saying in 1990, we were only surrounded by friends from that moment on. Um, 
countries that used to be members of the Warsaw Pact, our direct neighbors, think of the Czech Republic, think of Poland, etc., all of a sudden were going to be um, members of NATO and certainly also of the European Union. So Germany fell in love with the status quo and found it therefore particularly difficult to comprehend and uh, to understand uh, the consequences of a very different approach to European security by the Russian leadership beginning maybe a decade ago, certainly beginning in in, 20, uh, in 2008 with the uh, so-called little war in Georgia, continuing in 2014 with the illegal annexation of Crimea and the uh, beginning unrest in the Donbass region in eastern uh, Ukraine. Uh, Germans found it extremely difficult to abandon the idea of partnership with Russia. And that brings me back to your, to your question of energy dependence. The theory to which almost all relevant parts of German policy had subscribed is that it was in the interest of Germany to bind Russia into our energy relationship, to, uh, to invite Russia even to invest in downstream oil and gas uh, refinery uh, uh, and storage activities activities. The idea was that if, if the Soviet Union had not used gas and oil as a weapon in the era of the Cold War, why would they want to do that in the post-Cold War era where we were talking about partnership with Russia? So it took, it took the decision by the Russian leadership on the 23rd of February of this year to start this war against Ukraine for Germany to wake up in the morning of the 24th of February in, and to discover that, <clears throat> that all these assumptions uh, uh, had now been proven wrong, that the idea of an energy partnership was going out the window, that the very fundamental idea of partnership with Russia, including in in, in security policy, in energy policy, in, in so many other areas of, of uh, good neighborly relations uh, was no longer going to be uh, sustainable. In other words, I repeat what I tried to say in the beginning, for Germany, maybe even more than for most other European countries, the uh, 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 love affair with the status quo and the good neighborly partnership relationship with Russia that had developed since 1990 prevented Germany from, from uh, reacting to earlier alarm signals and have created a, um, a, an, a, a, you know, a radical need to um, overturn existing policies, uh, to redefine our priorities, uh, as is well known, the German government has decided within these last couple of months to uh, spend an additional 100 billion uh, euros on defense in order to make up for the shortcomings that have been created through many, many years of, 
of uh, 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 you know of a a policy that felt that investing in defense was no longer uh, such a high priority for Germany and her neighbors. So um, Germany found itself at a point where um, uh, earlier considerations about uh, uh, no more need to spend money on defense turned out to be fallacious, turned out to be wrong, and that we are now forced to make up for the for the lack of defense resources and defense equipment uh, by uh, rapidly spending a uh, hundred billion additional euros um, on on our armed forces, which is of course an unprecedented departure from the, the the policies of the German government and of the neighbors of Germany, if I can include our neighbors um, uh, of the last 20 or or 25 years. I, I am curious, though, because obviously Germany is now planning on uh, spending more in defense, but in a way that almost seems like a Band-Aid on the problem, which was the dependence on Russian oil. Do you see the war in Ukraine as a turning point for Germany's energy policy? Are they making any investments on that side? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. There is no issue more important at this moment for the German political class than to discuss the question of how, um, of how we can react to the use by Russia of energy as a weapon We've now agreed with our European partners to get rid of oil imports. So what tools can the EU use here to help, especially the younger generation in Ukraine? The important thing, the important starting point is for all of us to recognize that uh, the younger generation in Ukraine uh, has developed a very, very active, a surprisingly, an extraordinarily active civil society life. There are many, many young people in Ukraine, not only in Kiev, but uh, throughout the country, who have um, uh, been engaging in um, civil society projects, whether it's political, humanitarian, social, uh, social welfare, or other things. So there is an enormously active base for us to work with. What uh, can we do in particular to help uh, in a wartime situation to help the younger generation? Well, I think the first uh, obvious opportunity for us is to offer education, 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 to offer scholarship opportunities, for Ukrainian students and graduates and doctoral candidates um, to offer uh, opportunities for academic exchange um, and to be extremely generous with that. However, let me add that it is, of course, extremely important that we will not be doing this in an attempt to create a kind of a brain drain away from Ukraine. We want to be sure that the um, uh, young intelligentsia of Ukraine will have um, an incentive uh, 
if they are invited abroad to conduct their studies or their activities, uh, uh, that there is an incentive for them to return to Ukraine, hopefully at least once the war has come uh, to an end. So it's very important that arrangements are going to be, um, you know, tailor-made in a way to, uh, to avoid a brain drain, but still to offer these types of opportunities to the uh, younger generation in Ukraine. The second point, the, the last point I wanted to mention is um, countries like Poland, uh, but also including my own country, Germany, have uh, been offering refuge to uh, many, many thousands, hundreds of thousands of families, meaning women with their children who have left Ukraine because of the war situation. And these children need, of course, uh, adequate schooling. And that's another thing that uh, uh, is a challenge for some of our societies because of the language barriers, etc. cetera. Uh, I believe that the most important contribution we can make for children, for uh, high school type students, Uh, and for university students, uh, is to uh, offer them the most generous opportunities to conduct their studies, to continue their learning processes, uh, even during wartime. That's the, the most, the single most important thing. Finally, on top of that, of course, everything we do for the economic well-being, for the prosperity, for the maintenance of financial health for Ukraine is going to benefit the younger generation also quite directly. So in terms of uh, the, the, your question of what is it we can do, we need to include the um, financial assistance, the economic support programs, and of course also Uh, the the efforts by so many Western countries to offer military help and advice and support um, and deliveries of um, of uh, uh, military material of even uh, including weapons that's part of the overall program. Can you tell us how Ukraine can implement the Minsk Agreement so that sanctions against Russia have some teeth here? I happen to believe that the Minsk agreements are, are no longer to be considered a valid base for negotiations. The Minsk agreements, uh, which in essence represented a deal to end the 2014 conflict uh, along a, a line of contact uh, in eastern Ukraine, That agreement was never fully respected by the Russian side. And of course, also on the Ukrainian side, there were serious doubts about the implementability of these two Minsk agreements. Uh, with the uh, assault, with the military aggression against all of Ukraine, which Russia started on uh, February the 24th of this year, Uh, it is my sense that the very basis for the Minsk agreement has been destroyed 
um, and that if and when a time for negotiations between Russia and Ukraine um, uh, 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 comes comes up, realistically speaking, again, we will need or they will need to start from scratch. I don't think that the Minsk agreements of 2014, 2015 uh, can be a useful basis for the next round of negotiations. Well, we hope to speak with you again in the future about Germany's evolving strategy on this front. Thank you very much. That's Professor Ischinger. He is a professor at the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin, and his piece is International Security in the 21st Century, the Ukraine Crisis, and the European Security Order. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. <laughs>